Chapter 2 of Adventures of the Infallible Godal by Frederick Irving Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Blind Man's Bluff Godal, attend, said that adept in smart crime to himself as he paused at the curb. You think you are clever, but there goes your better. He had to step into the street to make way for the crowd that overflowed the pavement, men and women, newsboys, even unhorsed actors leaving their pillars for the time for the passing sensation, the beginning of the homing matinee crowds, all elbowing for a place around a tall, slender man in black, who, as he advanced, gently tapped a cane point before him. What attracted the vortex, however, was not so much the man himself as the fact that he wore a black mask. The mask was impenetrable. People said he had no eyes. It was Malvolio the magician, born to eternal darkness. From a child, so the story went, his fingers had been schooled with the same cruel science they ply in Russia to educate the toes of their ballet dancers, until his fingers saw for him. Head erect, shoulders squared, body poised with the precision of a skater, his handsome, clear-cut features almost ghastly in contrast to the band of silk ribbon that covered the sockets where sight should have been, he advanced with military step in the cleared circle that ever revolved about him, his slender cane shooting now and again with the flash of a rapier to tap-tap-tap on the flags. Why pay for an orchestra chair to witness his feats of legerdemain? Peopling silk hats with fecund families of rabbits, or even discovering a hogshead of boiling water in an innocent bystander's vest pocket, was as nothing to this theatric negotiation of Broadway in the rush hour of late Saturday afternoon. Malvolio the magician seemed oblivious to everything, save the subtle impulses of that wand of a cane. He stopped, suddenly alert to some immediate impression. The vague features relaxed, the teeth shone. "'Ah, Godal, my friend!' he cried. He turned and advanced deliberately through the crowd that opened a path in front of him. Those wonderful hands reached out and touched Godal on the arm, without hesitation as to direction. Godal could not repress a smile. Such a trick was worth a thousand a week to the front of the house, and nobody knew better than the great Malvolio the value of advertising. That was why he walked Broadway unattended twice a day. When he spoke, it was in French. I am sickened of them all, he said, sweeping his cane in a circle to indicate the gaping crowd straining to catch his words. See? We have at hand a public chauffeur with nothing better to do than follow in the wake of the great Malvolio. Godal, my friend, you are at leisure? Then we will enter. And Godal, playing his cards with enjoyment and admiration as well, permitted the blind man to open the door and help him, Godal, possessing five senses, into the cab pleased doubly, indeed, to note that the magician had managed to steal his wallet in the brief contact. "'To the park!' ordered Malvolio, showing his teeth to the crowd as he shut the door. Godal had known Malvolio first in Rome. The great of the earth gravitated toward each other. No one knew how great Godal was except himself. He knew that he had never failed. No one knew how great Malvolio was except Godal. Once he had attempted to imitate Malvolio, and it almost failed. The functions of the third finger of his left hand lacked the wonderful coordination possessed by the magician. 
Malvolio knew Godal as an entertaining cosmopolitan of which the world possesses far too few. I would exercise my English, said the mask, if you will be so good, my friend. Tell me, you know the lake shore in that city of Chicago? As a book, said Godal, you are about to parade there, eh? I am about to parade there, replied Malvolio, imitating the accents of the other. Therefore I would know it as a book. Read it to me, slowly, page by page, my friend. I walk there shortly. Godal possessed, first of all, a marvelous facility of visualizing. It was most necessary, almost as much so, in fact, for him in his profession, as for Malvolio in his, Malvolio without eyes. In a matter-of-fact manner, like a mariner charting some dangerous channel, he plotted the great thoroughfare from the boulevard entrance to the auditorium. The other listened attentively, recording every word. He had made use of Godal in this way before, and knew the value of that man's observations. Then suddenly, impatiently, One moment, there is another thing of immediate need. With the Pegasus Club, we are passing at this moment, eh? You are one of the, uh, what is it they say? Ah, yes, the fifty little millionaires. Ha, <laughs> ha, ah, yes. Godal looked out of the window. Indeed, they were passing the club now. They had been proceeding slowly, turning this way and that, halted now and again or hurried on by traffic policemen, until now they were merely a helpless unit in the faltering tide of Fifth Avenue. It was past five in the evening, and all uptown New York was on the move, afoot and a wheel. It was said of Malvolio that he would suffer himself to be whirled round twenty times on being set down in some remote neighborhood of a strange city and with the aid of his cane find his way back to his hotel with the surety of a pigeon. But even that faculty did not explain how he knew that they were passing a certain building, the Pegasus Club, at this moment. Unless, thought Godal, who was better pleased to study the other's methods than to ask questions, unless the sly fox had it recorded in his strange brain map that carriage wheels rattled over car tracks a hundred yards below this point. Godal smiles. It was simple, after all. I perform for your club Tuesday night. One thousand dollars they will pay me, the monkey who sees without eyes. My friend, it is good to be a monkey, even for such as these who, but— He paused and laid his hand on his companion's arm. If I could but see the color that is called blue once. They tell me it is cool. They cannot make me feel how cool it is. You will go to sea with me next summer and tell me about it, eh? Will you not, my friend? But three of these, what you call the fifty little millionaires, you will tell me why they are called that, three of these came to me in my hotel and would grasp my hand, and why not? I would grasp the hand of the devil himself if he but offered it. They are surprised. They would blindfold my poor eyes, my poor eyes, Godal, blindfold them again and again offer me their hands, thinking Malvolio a charlatan. Ha! <laughs> Again I must shake hands with them. One wears a ring with a great greasy stone. See, I have it here with me. It is bottle glass. Yet would this barbarian wear it until I in pity took it from him? Godal burst into a laugh. <laughs> so this was the thief. Colwell, one of the so-called fifty little millionaires who gave the Pegasus Club its savor, who exhibited their silk hats and ample boot soles in the plate-glass windows every Sunday afternoon, 
had been crying over the loss of a ringstone, a garish green affair for which he had paid hugely abroad. I am a marvelous man, eh, friend Goodall? Indeed, yes, agreed the other, smiling. Mavolio the magician sought Godal, his friend, this afternoon. Petrov, my manager, he walks ten steps behind me in the crowd. He taps three times with his stick, three steps to the right. Ha! There is Godal. Can I applaud? Even Godal must smile. My friend, Tuesday night Petrov is too clumsy. You will be my manager, but you must be somewhere else. Indeed not, cried Godal warmly and to himself. What does he drive at? Indeed, yes, said the blind man, laying his hand on the other's arm. I ask it of you. You will be in other places. If you but say yes, you will take me to sea in June and tell me what is the color blue. Listen. First, Malvolio will play the monkey. Then I am to be locked in a room for five minutes. At the end of five minutes, if I am gone, that which I have is mine, even to their fat wallets, fat wallets like this one of yours, which I now return intact. Godall accepted the return of his wallet absent-mindedly. It is what Mr. Colwell calls a sporting proposition. See, I have it in writing. It is in addition to the one thousand dollars. That I already possess. Now these fifty little millionaires, friend Godall, are they all like the three who came to me in my hotel? The one with the slippery stone in his ring, the stone that I have, that one had eight thousand dollars, forty thousand francs, in one wallet, in one thousand dollar notes. Does the American nation make new money especially for such as these? The notes were new, the imprint still crisp, like the face of my watch. Forty thousand francs in one wallet. I know, because I had the wallet as he talked. No, my friend, I have it not now. I put it back. Ha! <laughs> what? And there are fifty of them like that? I am to carry away what I can find. Godal, it is told that the very servants of the club own rows of brick houses and buy consoles at correct times. But fifty little millionaires! And Malvolio is to be locked in a room, alone. I have it in writing. A passing street lamp looked in and caught Godal in the act of blinking. Godal, my friend, if you will tell me what I must know, then I will teach you what you wish to know. You wish to know many things, eh? I can tell, for I always feel your eyes when you are by. Tell me now, every inch of the way. Play it as the lakefront in that city of Chicago. Godal chuckled. He did not love the fifty little millionaires. Those marvelous fingers. Malvolio was playing with them in the air now in his earnestness. They could rob a poor box. Godal, smiling grimly, began to draw the map his friend desired. Three steps up from the street, then the first glass door. Inside, two vestibules. Past them, on the right, the smoking room and lounge, a log fire at each end. On the left, the street parlor, a great table in the center, and heavy chairs all upholstered, none far from the walls. Between the rooms, on the left wall, the electric switch panel. Would he play with light and darkness? It would be as well to hold the secret of this panel. On the floors, deep carpets. Deep carpets, repeated the magician. It is well, I know. I do not like deep carpets. 
and this room where I shall be left alone behind locked doors. It would have to be the cloak room on the left of the main entrance, said Godal. Yes, that would be the only available room for such a test. No other rooms off the street parlor could be locked, as there were no doors. In this cloak room there were two doors, one on the main corridor and one on the first vestibule. There was a small window, but it was not to be thought of for one of Malvolio's girth. The doors were massive, of oak, and the locks, Godal remembered the locks well, having had need to examine them on a recent occasion, were tumbler locks. It would be rare business to see a man, even a magician, leave the cloakroom without help. And that, too, was in the bond, this sporting proposition. The locks have five tumblers, laughed Godal, more and more amused. Let there be fifty, whispered the other contemptuously. Tell me, my observing friend, who counts the tumblers of a lock from the outside, do these doors open in or out? In, said Godal, and the long fingers closed on his wrist in a twinkling. In, you say? In, repeated Godal, and he made a mental note to study the particular characteristics of doors that open in. Malvolio buried himself in his furs. The car sped on through the winding thoroughfares of the park, and Godal felt to counting the revolving flashes of the gas lamps as they rushed by. "'This is the one place in your great city where I find joy,' said the blind man at length. "'There are no staring crowds. I can pick my thoughts, and the pavements are glass. Outside of these walls your city is a rack that would torture me. Tell me, why is blue so cool?' June will be too late for the Mediterranean. We will start before. If you will but tell me, friend Godal, so that I can feel it, I will give you half. No, I will not. What is money to you? Are you quite sure about the doors opening in? Yes, that is good. Godal, if I could see, I think I would be like you, looking on and laughing. Let me tell you something of doors that open in. What? We are travelling at an unlawful speed. Monsieur Officier. Indeed, yes, the great Malvolio. Pity his poor eyes. Here is money falling from your hair. You are not a frugal man, so careless. The park policeman who had stopped them to warn them against speed stood staring at the crisp bill the blind man had plucked from his hair as the taxicab sped forward again. Malvolio directed the driver to his hotel through the speaking-tube, and a few minutes later they were set down there. Godal declined dinner with his queer friend. "'I have here your wallet once more, friend Godal,' laughed the blind magician. Oh, fifty little millionaires! Ah! You promise? You will not be there when I am there?' "'You have my stick-pen,' said Godal. "'I believe you are collecting bogus stones.' That one is bogus, but it was thought to be a fine gift by a friend who is now dead. The other, with evident disappointment, returned the pilfered stick-pin. "'You promise? You will not be there when I am there, my friend?' Godal held the blue-white hand in his own for a moment as they parted. "'No, I promise you,' he said, and he watched his queer friend away, Malvolio erect, smiling, unfaltering in his fine stride, conscious to the last dregs of the interest he excited on all sides. He shunned the elevator and started up the broad marble stairs, his slender cane tap-tap-tapping, lighting the way for his confident tread. Godal dined at his club, looking on and laughing, 
as Malvolio had said, with a directness that rather startled the easy rogue into wakefulness. Godal's career had defied innuendo. His was not an art, but a science, precise, infallible. But several times that afternoon, in the somber shadows of their cab, he had felt with a strange thrill that black, impenetrable mask turn on him, as though an inner vision lighted those darkened orbs. Frankly, he avoided afflicted persons in the pursuit of his trade, not because of compunctions, which troubled him not at all, but because a person lacking in any of the five senses was apt to be uncannily alert in one of the remaining four. He was intensely a materialist, a gambler who pinned his faith to marked cards, never to superstition. He believed intuition largely a foolish fetish, except as actuated by the purely physical cravings. Yet he recognized a strange clarity in the mental outlook of the afflicted that seemed unexplainable by any other means. Malvolio, too, played with marked cards. After all, magic is but the clever arrangement of properties. But why had Malvolio picked him? Why had Malvolio confided in him at all? There were a dozen other members of the Pegasus Club who would have served as well, so far as furnishing the business of the affair, who would have entered the game as a huge joke. To hold up the fifty little millionaires in their upholstered wallow would surely set the whole town by the ears. Something of the sort was needed to bring the ribald crew back to earth. But, thought Godall, if the task were to be done, he would much prefer to do it himself, not look on as a supernumerary. Malvolio, of course, was a thief. The only reason he did not practice his profession was that he found the business of playing the monkey paid better. Then, too, as a thief, he must bury his talents. And there is nothing so sweet to the Latin as applause. Malvolio could not keep his fingers quiet. Godall had permitted himself to be stripped in their ride through sheer enjoyment of observation. There was nothing too small to be learned, and learned well. Nevertheless, it had irritated him to think that this master had whispered in his ear familiarly. It smacked too much of kinship. Godall knew no kin. As he swept the magnificent dining-room with his eyes, however, he could not repress a chuckle of sheer delight. It would be a hundred-day jest. They all conformed pretty well to type, a type against which the finer sensibilities of Godal revolted. In the beginning, the Pegasus had been the coming together of a few kindred souls, modest, comfortable, homelike, a meeting-place of intellectual men who took their chiefest pleasure in the friction of ideas. In this way, the organization had come to have a name, even among the many clubs of the city. Godal had adopted it as his home, and, he cynically paraphrased it, he might be without honor in his own country, but never in his own home. He had always been pleased to think that when he entered there he left the undesirable something outside, like the dust of his shoes on the doormat. Not that he lacked the lust of the game, or a conscious pride in that slick infallibility which had made him a prince for whom other men went poor. There are times and places for all things, and this had been home until, one by one, this tribe had crept in, overturned traditions, substituted the brass of vulgar display for the gold of the fine communion that they did not profess to understand, much less to practice. A newspaper wag had finally dubbed them the Club of the Fifty Little Millionaires, and the name had stuck. It happened that a handful of them had been brooded in the same coop, 
that of a copper king who had begun at the slag pile and ended in philanthropy. As the newcomers gained ascendancy, the old sect of friends gradually drifted away. The pace was too fast for them. There is truth in what Malvolio had said of the servants, and there is nothing quite so unappetizing as the contempt of those who serve one meat and drink. But Godal, looking on and laughing, still preserved the habit of picking his meals here with discriminating taste, though now he was less particular about wiping his feet on the doormat than formerly. He even indulged in play occasionally, and while he played, he listened to the talk about things worth knowing. Tonight, the talk was all Malvolio, at the particular rubber where he chose to play. It was to be a rare occasion. True, they were to pay the magician roundly for the seance, and it offered him, besides, a sporting proposition, in the shape of a written permission to carry off all his fingers could lift. But they chose to interpret sport according to their own lights. Two centuries ago, it was sport in Merry England to tie a gamecock to a stump and shy brickbats at it. The game was conducted according to rules carefully worked out, and was popular with all concerned, except the gamecock. Godall, at length, getting his fill, rose in disgust and passed out. At the corner the street lamp winked at him in its knowing way, and Godall, forgetting the gorge that had risen in him, returned the wink, smiling. Colwell, the master of ceremonies, was venturing to a chosen few that a certain faker would be ineligible for dates on a kerosene circuit in Arkansas before the evening was over, when the telephone boy brought him a message from the Victoria. Malvolio had started, and was driving to avoid the inevitable crowd that dogged his steps. The committee was giving a last touch to its properties, a camera and flashlight apparatus arranged behind a screen when there came the familiar tap-tap-tapping of the cane on the marble steps. If the lilt of his gait were any criterion, the mask was in fine fettle. So, he was whispering, three steps up from the street, two vestibules, and deep carpets. Deep carpets are bad. As he passed through the first vestibule, this strange, impassive figure in dead black ran his fingers along the wall. There was the door, indeed, by which he would escape. Malvolio the magician, cried a flunky in gold lace as the inner doors swung open. Colwell was there with extended hand. The hand of the other closed on it without hesitation, holding it for a moment. You speak no French? No. It is most unfortunate. I speak things, and I am most awkward in your tongue. Is that a color blue here? I would touch it before I play. He waved his cane toward the entrance. The corridor. It is empty, yes? It is so in the bond. Thus, he cried, his teeth glowing at the circle of faces before him, thus am I to take away that which is mine, is it not? Colwell elevated a knowing eyebrow at his companions. Colwell had not been a plumber's assistant for nothing in the days of his youth. He had plugged the key slots with molten lead. Once closed, it would require the aid of a carpenter, not a locksmith, not even a magical locksmith, to negotiate the doors of the cloakroom. Caldwell did not begrudge his wallet full of small change at auction bridge, but he was decidedly averse to letting it fall into the hands of this blind beggar. They helped him out of his coat, 
My cane, too, he said as he handed the cane to Caldwell. It was of ebony, as thin as a baton, and without ornament of any kind save a platinum top. It is my faithful Acades. It is a little brother to my poor senses. It is wonderful. He swayed slightly and put out a hand to steady himself against Caldwell. Tonight, gentlemen, in your honor, Malvolio disarms himself for the, how is it, the fifty little millionaires, ah, who are so good as to receive me. Am I, he continued, to have the honor of shaking the hands of the gentlemen? I do not know. He paused as though embarrassed, shrugged his shoulders depreciatingly, and then, smiling, myself as a person is not present, if you so desire, only my talents, which you buy and pay for. Ah, I am awkward in your tongue. Sometimes, gentlemen, I am the guest. Sometimes I am only the monkey with his tricks. You understand? I thank you, sir. Saunders of Texas Union. Ah, of the landed gentry of this great country. I am indeed pleasured. A smile went the rounds. Saunders of Texas Union, who was shaking the hand of the mask with one hand, and discreetly feeling the muscles under the black-sleeved arm with the other, had been a puddler at Homestead until his talents for ragtime rescued him from oblivion and gave him Texas Union as a pocket-piece. He brought forward Jones of Pacific Cascade, Welton of Topaw Magnet, Smithers of Excelsior Common, Jameson of Allegheny Western, and so on down the line. The guest, in his naivete, seemed under the impression that the handles to the names referred to ancestral acres. These men had been named in the daily papers so often in connection with their pet manipulations in the market that they themselves had come to accept the nomenclature, using it much as an Englishman would say Kitchener of Khartoum or Marlborough of Blenheim. So the mask was passed around the room. He was well worth seeing at close range. He accepted each hand with a steely grip, concentrated the vague blackness of his mask on each face, and spoke briefly and in halting phrases. In laying aside his cane, he seemed to have lost something of the poise that distinguished the great Malvolio on the street or on the stage, and he leaned heavily on a shoulder here, on an arm there, as he was passed from one to another. There was a tremor of excitement in the room. A diversion had been promised. But what it was to be, the honorable gentlemen of the committee had kept to themselves and their confederates. Caldwell, Sanders, and Mason, of independent guano, whispered together for a moment, and when the circle of introductions was complete, the guest was led to the center of the room. He took his place at the head of the big table, exploring it nervously with his fingers while he waited for the company to be seated. What followed was somewhat tame, and they expressed themselves to that effect occasionally behind their hands. They had seen the same thing before. A two-dollar bill gave the veriest street loafer the same privilege every afternoon and evening at the Victoria, except for a few parlor pieces the magician reserved for private entertainments. But even the makings of these were to be had for a few pennies in any one of the numerous shops in Sixth Avenue devoted to the properties of magic. It was merely quickness of hand against slowness of eye. It is said that the persistency of vision amounts to one hundredth of a second. These fingers found ample room to work in that slit of time. Yet the circle looked on languidly, like an audience at a championship fistfight tolerating the preliminaries. The performer had borrowed a pack of cards bearing the unbroken seal of the club, and was playing a solitary game at whist 
cards faced, a trick of Malvolio's, by the way, which has never been satisfactorily explained, when suddenly the barons of Tonopah, Allegheny, and so forth, sat up with a thrill of anticipation. It was evident to all, except perhaps the performer himself, that the apex of the evening was at hand. Mason softly opened the electric switch cabinet. Caldwell and Saunders moved carelessly toward the table, taking up positions on either hand of the mask, as though for a better view of the game. Then came blank, overwhelming darkness. There was the scuffle of feet, the snapping impact of body against body, a gasp, a half-uttered cry of pain, then, "'Confound him!' it was the voice of Caldwell, breathing hard. "'He's like a bull! Gad! Can't you—' Then another voice, that of Saunders. "'Steady! I've got him! Ready?' The unseen struggle ceased suddenly. There were several in that thrilled circle. It grew sick. It seemed evident that the honorable gentleman of the committee had overpowered the magician, were about to strip him of his mask, to show him up as the charlatan who had too long duped the city. They wanted their money's worth. Caldwell was laughing, short, sharp. He had the mask now. They could hear the silken ribbon rip as it came away. Now, Mason, let him have it. The words ended in the roar of mingled rage and pain. There came a sharp snap-snap, as of bones coming away from their sockets, and simultaneously the muffled explosion and the blinding glare of the camera flashlight. And in the one hundredth of a second of incandescence, there was indelibly imprinted on the vision of the audience the figure of the magician holding two men at arm's length, each by the wrist, their features hideously contorted. Then dead darkness fell, in the midst of which hung the imprinted scene in silhouette against a phosphorescent pall. Someone thought of the lights. It was the magician himself. This curious circumstance was not noted until later. The switch clicked, and the chandeliers sprang into being again. Caldwell held the torn mask in his hand. Every eye, still straining for sight after the shock of the flashlight, sought the blind face of the performer. It was horribly blind now, stripped of its silk ribbon. Covering the eye sockets like plasters were great black discs larger than silver dollars. He stumbled across the room, almost fell against the table. His uncertain hand sought Caldwell's arm, traveled down its length, and took from the fingers the torn mask and replaced it. The master of ceremonies gazed at the cadaverous face, fascinated. The room was deathly silent. The magician flashed his teeth in a poor attempt at a smile. His voice, when he spoke, was in whispers as crisp as leaves. Ah, my poor eyes, I do not sell. Gentlemen, I am clumsy with your words. Let me not offend those who are my friends among you when I say I do not sell you my private self. It is only the monkey in me you can buy. Caldwell and Saunders were making efforts to soothe their arms, which were suffering exquisitely. Several men pushed forward, ashamed to bridge the embarrassment with their apologies to the magician, who stared at them imperturbably with the mask. Things gradually came to rights, except for the honorable gentlemen of the committee, who took the first chance to retire with their troubles. The hands of the mask were like steel, and when he wrenched the bones in their sockets he had not dealt lightly. "'We proceed,' said the magician with a depreciating wave of his hand. "'The room!' I am to be your prisoner. It is so written. The few members who knew of Caldwell's precautions of plugging the key slots with lead thought wryly of the fact now. 
If this thing went any further, the Pegasus Club would be the butt of the town. We will forget that, said Welton of Tonopah Magnet, assuming leadership in a movement to make amends. Besides, he said with a laugh, we haven't given you the chance to go through our pockets yet. You would have to escape empty-handed. Your pardon, said the mask with a grand bow. I have already taken the opportunity. So saying, he displayed the contents of his capacious pockets. He had at least a score of wallets and several rolls of banknotes. The room exploded in a cry of amazement. Then the truth flashed upon them. When they passed the guest from hand to hand, his nimble fingers had been busy substituting wads of paper for wallets. "'The hour is late,' he continued, feeling the face of his watch. "'I must be gone in five minutes. The room, if you will.' Welton of Tonopah Magnet, roaring with laughter, took the magician, they admitted now he was at least that, and led him to the door of the cloakroom. "'One favor,' said the mask at the threshold. "'My coat, my hat, the faithful cane. Ah, I thank you. I bid you good night.' The naivete of the words was masterly. Welton of Tonopah Magnet drew the door shut with a slam, and the lock clicked. He faced the others and turned his trousers' pockets inside out comically. He was not worrying about the safety of his cash, but he did admire the deftness of those fingers. "'I am glad to say he left my watch,' he said, and he put his watch on the table. It was lacking five minutes of midnight. "'What gets me,' he continued, turning toward the closed door, "'is how we are going to get the poor devil out without a battering ram. Caldwell has most certainly earned everlasting fame by his brilliant entertainment this evening.' The keys were useless now that the spring locks had snapped on the prisoner. Someone suggested sending for the engineer, but one and all agreed that the game must be played out in common decency. They all retired to the lounging room to give the blind beggar five minutes to find out the trick that had been played on him. At the end of five minutes they sent for the engineer, and that grimy individual appeared, loaded down with tools. He expressed it as his reverend opinion a damned fine door was about to be turned into scrap. There was one chance that a gasoline torch might blow the lead from the key slot. But no, the molten metal only completed the upsetting of the fine mechanism. There was nothing to do but cut round the lock with a compass saw. "'Cheer up, Malvolio,' said Welton, through the door. "'We will be with you in another minute.' Just then Godal ran in from the street. He threw his hat and coat to an attendant. "'Ha! The devil to pay, eh?' he cried excitedly. "'I just this minute heard of it, and I rushed here.' "'What?' said a number of voices at once. The usually exquisite Godal was somewhat disheveled, and his eyes were red. "'Malvolio!' cried he, staring at them as though perplexed at their blandness. "'Do you mean to say you don't know why he didn't show up this evening?' "'Didn't show up? What do you mean?' "'You really don't know,' cried Godal, his eyes blazing. "'No, what? Tell us the answer,' said someone with a laugh. "'The police found him bound and gagged in a deserted cab in Central Park. They've got him in Bellevue Hospital now, raving.' By gad, if I... The room laughed. Even the grimy engineer boring a hole to start his compass saw looked over his shoulder and grinned at Godal. Don't excite yourself, Godal, said Welton of Tonopah Magnet. Somebody's been stringing you. We've got Malvolio here now. Gad, I wish you we didn't have him. You're just in time to help us out of a devil of a mess. That humorist Caldwell has plugged the locks with lead, and we can't get the blind beggar out without sawing the door down. He's sweating blood in there now. 
In there? cried Godall, pushing his way through the ring around the engineer. In there, repeated Welton. The kleptomaniac has got a cool ten thousand of mine. No. Yes, said Welton, mimicking Godall's tone. You didn't know there was that much money in the world, eh? Let me get this straight, said Godall, laying a hand on the engineer's arm to stop his work. You think you have Malvolio locked in there with your wallets. I tell you, Malvolio hasn't been within a mile of this place tonight. I'd lay you a thousand on it, cried Welton. Tut, tut, believe me, you are betting on the wrong card. Godall's eyes danced. I'd lay you a thousand on it, reiterated the Tonopah magnate. We'll have to let Malvolio hold my stake until we get him out. Gad, he went through me so clean, I couldn't swear at this minute that I've got on socks. You are betting on a sure thing? I'm taking candy from a child, retorted Welton. I take you, cried Godall, his eyes twinkling. Anybody else want candy? I warn you. There were several. It wasn't every day in the week that they could get Godall on the hip. I warn you again, said Godall as he accepted the markers, that Malvolio is not in that room. If anybody is in there, he is an imposter. You can prove it in a minute by telephoning Bellevue. The biting saw completed its half-circle about the lock. The door swung open. The room was empty. Several volunteers ran to the rear door. Their sharp chorus of amazement started the crowd tumbling after them. The rear door was off its hinges. It stood propped against the jam. A child could see what happened. The prisoner, laden with the cash of the fifty little millionaires, had simply drawn the bolts of the two hinges and lifted the door out of its frame. On the floor was a wad of handbills like those the rogue had left in his dupe's pockets in place of their wallets. They read, Malvolio, he has no eyes. Watch his fingers. The fifty little millionaires gazed at each other, dumbfounded, feeling their pockets the while. The infallible Godal fell into a chair, roaring with laughter. He threw back his head, kicked out his heels, buried his hands waist-deep in the crisp bills that lined his pockets, all in cold, hard cash. On the whole, he had never spent a more profitable evening. As for Malvolio the magician, that charlatan could be mighty thankful that it was not he whom the honorable gentleman of the committee had subjected to manhandling. For Malvolio had the eyes of a hawk. So much Godal had ascertained earlier in the evening, when he, in the guise of a murderous cabby, was subjecting the Italian to the indignity of a gag. End of Blind Man's Bluff